Well, Pentecost is a prominent holy day in the Christian calendar, as you know. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, Pentecost was also a celebration that the Jews participated in. They called it the uh, Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks, or sometimes they called it a wave offering. And that was because the first offering of first fruits was a sheaf of barley grain. They were celebrating the, the harvest of the barley crop. So they would tie a sheaf together and they would take it to the priest and the priest would take the sheaf of barley grain and wave it before the Lord. So it came to be called a wave offering as well as the first first fruits offering. Now, if that's not confusing enough, the second first fruits offering, yes, there were only two, so you can breathe a, a sigh of relief. But the second first fruits offering was of wheat. And the same thing, the same process occurred. They would bring a sheaf of wheat to the priest, the priest took it, waved it before the Lord. This became the second wave offering, the second first fruits offering, or the Feast of Weeks. Now, all of this is germane only in the sense that the Jews had a very precise sense of their history and a precise sense of God stepping into their history at particular times, particularly those times when things were desperate. We see this beginning, in fact, with Passover, which, as you know, is the feast commemorating the Jews' release from bondage from Egypt. The Passover is the time that they reflect on the angel of death passing over the homes of the Hebrews, which were marked with the blood of a lamb. And in this passage of scripture, we find tied together all of this Hebrew history and the promise of things to come. In the Passover, Peter is seeing very clearly that Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed, causing the angel of death to pass over those who have faith in Christ so that we live forever with God in heaven, this is a part of the Pentecost experience. But there's more. As the Jews thought about Passover and the desperate times of being slaves, they reflected as well on their coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. Here they were, finally, they were released from slavery and now they're free. 
and they're wandering in the wilderness aimlessly because nobody's been that way before, not even Moses. Nobody really knows where they're going, and the people finally began to grumble and say, we were better off when we were slaves. At least we knew where our next meal was coming from. They were lacking water, they were lacking food, and they were lacking direction. They had no idea where they were going. And into this desperate situation, God stepped. He stepped by producing water from rocks. He stepped by producing manna to eat, manna in the wilderness. And he gave them direction by providing a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He led them when they had no sense of where they were going. But more. They arrived at Mount Sinai. And they had had a a sense of judicial precedent when they were in Egypt. By that I mean they were subject to the Egyptian laws not laws that they developed or even embraced, but they were governed by the laws of Egypt. So they had some sense of legal priority, but here they were as wanderers in the wilderness, and the law of the jungle was beginning to take over. Their survival of the fittest was beginning to take root. And into this kind of chaos, social chaos, God stepped with the law of Moses, the Mosaic law code. And he rescued the people from that chaotic social condition in which they found themselves. There Confusion and desperation continued. We could trace it, if we had time, through the years of the prophets, down to the time of Pentecost, when Peter proclaimed the words we read a few moments ago. And if you have a couple of hours, we'll stay and rehearse in the Christian church all of those times that God stepped into our desperate history. I don't see a lot of affirmation for that. So we'll we'll cut that part out. But we could continue to recount in our history ways that God has come to us. But let's fast forward to our own day. And in doing so, we witness a kind of spiritual and social desperation in our times. I feel like I need to add a disclaimer at this point. I don't preach politics. But 
in addressing social conditions, some people might think I am. So if you think I am being political, slap yourself on the wrist and saying, this is just me reading into this. Because I think these social times need to be addressed, spiritually speaking. And in doing so, sometimes people think I'm being political, and I'm not. But these days, a kind of darkness has descended upon us. We seem to have forgotten, or at least neglected, the ways we human beings should treat one another. It seems that we have lost the ability to regard with respect others if they differ in their opinions or convictions from us. We Baptists were, for the first 300 years of our history, champions of this kind of respect and champions of what came generally to be called the priesthood of all believers. And we championed a new kind of religious freedom. And in fact, Baptists were responsible for the first occasion where a civil government granted complete religious freedom. That's a part of our heritage as Baptists. This was known, as I said, generally as the priesthood of the believer, but we Baptists called it soul competency, meaning that we believe that every individual is competent in and of himself or herself to stand before God and sense what God is saying to them. But in these days, as I mentioned, a kind of darkness or blindness has descended upon us spiritually and socially. It was true in the days of the first Pentecost, those who were responsible for condemning Jesus to death were themselves spiritually blinded. They were blind guides trying to give everyone else direction. And in our days, there seem to be those who would lead us from a position of blindness They believe that they and they alone possess the ability to understand the truth and any challenge to what they believe is true must by definition be false. In losing respect for other people and their opinions they can no longer compromise because the only truth they can accept is their own brand, regardless how much it has to be stretched to accommodate their beliefs. 
and how I could wish, how I, I wish I could say that the church has escaped this kind of travesty. But to my deep regret and grief, it is not. There are many of those who called themselves Baptists, the champions of soul competency and the priesthood of the believer. These Baptists became so convinced of their own rightness that they became self-righteous, arrogant, and so judgmental that condemning others became second nature to them. But condemning someone else means I assume the power to be judge, to be judgmental. A power Jesus does not grant us. It's a power that we attribute to ourselves if we have that kind of attitude. And the same kind of personal perversion of arrogance has become pervasive in our society. It has seeped into the halls of Congress. It dwells as a shadowy specter in the offices of the executive branch, and it even threatens to infect with its dis-ease those charged with dispensing justice. All of this is to say that once more, as in times past, we stand before God in desperate need. I have lost hope that the legislature can solve our problems. A presidential proclamation will not undo the damage we have done to ourselves. A court order can't fix us. Those faithful women and men, disciples of Jesus and leaders of that first church stood on that day of Pentecost and faced an impossible task. Their assignment had been clear. Take the message of God's good news to all the world. Begin at Jerusalem and go into Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And tell them there is hope in Christ that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Tell them that Christ has given instructions about how to live, about how to treat other people. Tell them that the desperation we feel does not have to be terminal just as God provided a pillar of fire to guide the ancient Hebrews, even so there is hope that God, the Holy Spirit, 
will step into our experiences and deliver us from the shackles we have forged for ourselves and provide guidance through this time of desperation. Those first disciples on that day of Pentecost faced the hopeless task, a true mission impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. The Holy Spirit that is God's very presence came to them and dwelt within them and empowered them. And for you and me, few in number though we may be, we are given a strategic assignment to bring Christ's healing and hope to our community, to our nation, to our world. Can we do it? Of course not. No more than those early disciples could. But through them, the Holy Spirit caused the mighty Roman Empire to bow its knees and embrace Christ. But the same Holy Spirit who empowered them can create in us the power to ignite change. What we need, only God can do. But the good news is that in the history of this old world, God's people have been in desperate need before. And God has come to them, visiting them with exactly what they needed. So are we willing to say with one accord, come, Holy Spirit, fill me. As I yield myself to you, empower me that I may be an agent of your hope and healing in these desperate times.